Foreign Agents Registration Act, the rise of the American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs, AECZA, began one year after the passage of a law specifically aimed at curbing foreign influence over the U.S. government. The Foreign Agents Registration Act was enacted in 1938. Farah's purpose was to limit the influence of foreign agents and propaganda on American public policy through agent registration and public disclosure. Farah defined a foreign agent as any person acting as a lobbyist, PR professional, or lawyer for a foreign principal, or any domestic organization subsidized by a foreign principal. In June of 1934, a special House committee started to investigate the extent, character, and object of Nazi propaganda in the U.S. and the diffusion within the U.S. of subversive propaganda. For three days, the committee grilled foes of Nazi Germany, as well as some of Germany's contract public relations agents operating in the United States. In 1934, Time magazine exposed details of German payments to the nation's top PR firm, Carl Boyer & Associates. The article read, Carl Dickey is a member of the Manhattan press agent firm of Carl Boyer & Associates. Carl Boyer, one-time publisher of the Havana Post and Telegram, developed to his full stature under George Creel in wartime propaganda service. From publicist Dickey, the committee learned that in 1933 the Boyer Agency had received $4,000 from Council Keep to explain Hitlerite anti-Semitism in publicity releases. Since then, the firm has handled a $6,000 a month campaign publicizing German railways travel in Germany. Of the 6000 monthly fee, said Mr. Dickey, 1750 went to George Sylvester Wiedrich. George Sylvester Wiedrich, 1884-1962, would later face prosecution and prison time for his publicity role, while Carl Boyer and Associates were cleared. The firm became somewhat more discriminating in handling foreign public relations jobs. But one personality involved in the German propaganda was less one-dimensional than Time magazine portrayed him. The trajectory of Kanzel Kiep, whose full name was Otto Karl Kiep, ended heroically. After returning to Germany from his stint as Consul General in New York, Kipp joined the resistance and was implicated in the July 20, 1944 bomb plot against Adolf Hitler. Kipp was hanged that very year in Berlin. Although later analysis and the legal counsel of the Jewish agency in congressional testimony claimed the intent of Farah was primarily to preempt Nazi activity in the United States, in reality, the framers of the act purposefully wrote it broadly to encompass any, quote, propaganda designed to popularize various alien political faiths, unquote. No clear-cut filters for distinguishing friends from foes were embedded in Farah. One country on the mind of U.S. legislators was certainly the Soviet Union. Soviet communism was clearly covered by Farah even after Russia declared war on Germany in World War II. Years of congressional investigations prior to 1938 by the Fish and later the McCormick committees had examined subsidies of Amtorg, an agency of the Russian government. The Associated Press correctly trumpeted Farah as a broad new initiative against all foreign isms on October 7, 1938. Their report read, 
Representative Dees of Texas urged President Roosevelt today to recommend legislation outlawing any organization which is under the control of a foreign government. There are several hundred organizations in this country that are under the influence of Soviet Russia, Italy, Germany, said a statement by Mr. Dees. He urged also that the president back a proposed bill requiring organizations which are disseminating foreign isms to make an account of their funds and contributors. This, he said, would keep many good people from joining the organizations and being used as dupes. President Roosevelt's remarks at Hyde Park today were seconded by officials here, who said that foreign spies have been trying hard to get details of the new American defense program. The very first criminal trial over the law involved not agents of Nazi Germany, but Soviet propagandists. The criminal prosecution commenced half a year before the U.S. entered the Second World War. Disclosure is the mechanism that allows the enforcement of FARA. Before the sunshine provisions of 1946 lobbying disclosures, campaign finance laws, or the 1966 Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, FARA was pioneering transparency as a tool for better public policymaking. It provided that FARA registration disclosures would be, quote, public records and open to public examination and inspection at all reasonable hours, unquote. The act has been updated several times since 1938. The law was therefore designed not to directly restrict foreign propaganda, but to provide total public transparency over the operations of foreign agents in the U.S. Mandatory disclosure and fear of punishment would deter the most effective foreign agent propaganda campaigns, those which were launched as grassroots American initiatives. By 1942, Farah would ensure that propaganda was properly labeled as being paid for and distributed, bearing the name and address of the registered foreign agent. The secondary core purpose of Farah disclosure has always been to shield the U.S. Congress and the president from foreign-influenced grassroots lobbying, shaping policy, legislation, and lawmaking. As with all U.S. laws, the actual enforcement of FARA depends on the U.S. Department of Justice's prosecutorial discretion. This, in turn, is shaped by the priorities of the president. Faithful execution of FARA has been tempered by little-understood drivers as presidential appointees in the Department of Justice, especially the Attorney General, interpret the changing political realities of the administration and country. Foreign agents are compelled to file detailed activity reports, including declarations of receipts and disbursements of all funds in support of their activities every six months. All such reports were originally filed with the U.S. Department of State, which was charged with administering FARA. In 1938, the U.S. State Department drummed up press coverage, warning that foreign agent filings were due by October 6, and that referrals to the Department of Justice and possible penalties and imprisonment would be in store for violators. The State Department felt compelled to encourage registration through moral suasion due to low initial volumes of responses to its own mailings and outreach efforts. They wrote, The Department is doing everything possible to impress upon all agents of foreign principles the advisability of a careful study of the Act of June 8, 1938. Later in the month, the State Department was forced to go on a diplomatic offensive to smooth the ruffled feathers of foreign agents who felt that their patriotism and their loyalty to American principles had been impugned. They wrote, 
The department takes this opportunity to point out that registration under the Act, requiring the registration of agents of foreign principles, was designed merely to show the exact nature of the connection of such an agent to his foreign principle. The Act is broad in its terms and imposes the duty to register on many American citizens, companies, and organizations whose work is of a wholly unimpeachable character. The mere fact of registration under the Act affords no ground for assuming that any person so registered is engaged in unpatriotic activity. By March 28 of 1939, the State Department was able to announce 317 FARA registrants, including marine safety devices representing Dutch, German, and British commercial firms, the American Express Company affiliate in Rome, Helen Black of the Soviet Literary Agency, and Joseph Brainin of the Jewish Agency for Palestine. By November 11, 371 foreign agents had registered. The New York Times headline blared ominously that there were no prosecutions yet, but there were several investigations underway. Soon, Farah's epicenter shifted from the State Department's role in generating registrations to greater law enforcement emphasis at the U.S. Department of Justice. In December of 1939, the first criminal indictments under Farah targeted Soviet propaganda. A report read, Two Russian citizens, officers of Buknizia, Inc., a Soviet propaganda agency, were fined in federal district court here today after pleading guilty to willful omission of material information from a registration statement filed with the State Department under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Specifically, the Russians pled guilty to willful omission of material information on their FARA registrations. They'd failed to mention in their FARA registrations the structure of their foreign compensation and names of acting foreign principals. They were summarily returned to Russia, and their inventories of magazines, books, and other materials were ordered disposed of as quickly as possible. However, two Russians, who had since become naturalized American citizens, and the secretary of Buknizia, Inc., stood trial in 1941. It was reported that there will be three defendants in the trial, which opens here in two weeks from Monday. Raphael Rush and Morris Liskin, Russian-born naturalized Americans, and Norman Weinberg, a native American citizen. They were indicted as long ago as December 16, 1939, charged as having served as agents of Mesninga, a Soviet organization with headquarters in Moscow which is the official literary agency of the Soviet government. In July of 1939, a German news organization was also prosecuted. The U.S. government charged Transocean News with being a propaganda arm of the Nazi government. Ten years later, two managers of the American branch were released under the terms of a diplomatic agreement. Russia again came under the spotlight as Amtorg Trading Corporation officials were indicted for alleged violations of FARA. Although Amtorg functioned primarily as a purchasing company for the Soviet Union, Attorney General Howard McGrath... 1903 to 1966, charged that Amtorg had been collecting information, dispersing funds, and otherwise acting as an arm of the Soviet government in this country. Amtorg's activities and documented Jewish agency-financed U.S. operations, examined later, are strikingly similar, except that one organization was dismantled while the other flourished, expanded, morphed, 
and formed subsidiaries. On April 29, 1942, Farah was vastly strengthened as wartime threat perceptions spurred Congress to augment the penalties and to initiate a crackdown on violators. Prison terms for violations were increased. Given the location and U.S. jurisdiction over registrant agents, the enforcement of Farah was transferred from the Secretary of State to the Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Registrants would no longer be hearing awkward pronouncements in the American press from the U.S. State Department. Records had to be transferred, stipulated by a revision to the Act, ordering that all property, books, and records heretofore maintained by the Secretary of State with respect to his administration of said Act of June 8, 1938, are hereby transferred to and vested in the Attorney General. The Attorney General was required to keep the State Department in the loop by providing copies of all registration statements, although this close communications mandate would later break down. The Attorney General was vested with the creation of forms and enforcement policies. FARA, as amended in 1942, would not be revised again until 1966. Key clauses within the Act made it clear that a simple agreement to act as a foreign agent or a person who holds himself out to be an agent, whether a contract was present or not, was enough for an individual or organization to come under the jurisdiction of the law. The law read, except as provided in subsection D of this section, the term agent of foreign principle includes any person who acts or agrees to act within the United States as or who is or holds himself out to be, whether or not pursuant to contractual relationship, a public relations counsel, publicity agent, information service employee, servant, agent, representative, or attorney for a foreign principal, any person who within the United States collects information for or reports information to a foreign principal who, within the United States, solicits or accepts compensation, contributions, or loans directly or indirectly from a foreign principal, or who, within the United States, solicits, disperses, dispenses, or collects compensation, contributions, loans, money, or anything of value directly or indirectly for a foreign principal who, within the United States, acts at the order, request, or under the direction of a foreign principal. The likelihood of indirect contributions to finance a foreign agent became poignant. In 1963, Senator James William Fulbright, 1905 to 1995, would uncover how hidden and ongoing subventions from the quasi-governmental Jewish agency in Israel were being used to offer free newsletter subscriptions to influential Americans, including senators. The conflict over a huge flow of payments for public relations and lobbying, as well as Isaiah Kennan's status as a foreign agent, culminated in a major public showdown in the Senate and a private battle with the Department of Justice. The 1942 Farah Amendments took care to exclude news or press services organized under the laws of the United States engaged in, quote, 
bona fide news or journalistic activities, unquote. This was predicated on majority U.S. ownership and no subsidy provided by foreign principles. This clause raised questions about whether Soviet news services and Eastern Bloc publications would be allowed into the U.S., even if registered. It also impacted the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which provided news and bulletins to community newspapers across the United States, but was owned by the Jewish Agency. More troubling for Isaiah L. Kennan were the 1942 strictures covering public relations, public policy, and politics. It read, The term Public Relations Council includes any person who engages directly or indirectly in informing, advising, or in any way representing a principle in any matter pertaining to political or public interests, policies, or relations. The 1942 amendments also broadened the definition of foreign principles to include agencies of sovereign groups, foreign political parties, and even bodies of insurgents vying for control of a territory. The law also focused on defining political propaganda subject to FARA oversight as any expression and communication that is reasonably adapted to or which the person disseminating the same believes will, or which intends to, prevail upon, indoctrinate, convert, induce, or in any other way influence a recipient or any section of the public within the United States with reference to the political or public interests, policies, or relations of a government, of a foreign country, or a foreign political entity, or with reference to the foreign policies of the United States, or to promote in the United States racial, religious, or social dissensions. These strictures were enforced. Two San Francisco publicists, Frederick Vincent Williams and David Warren Ryder, were convicted in June of 1942 for violating Farah. They were charged as unregistered foreign agents of the Japanese government because they worked for Japan's San Francisco Consul General. Prosecution spurred other registrations. By December of 1942, 330 registration statements for entities had been filed, covering more than 2,000 individual foreign agents. One-third represented allied or friendly nations. Allied and friendly governments were given a holiday from strict FARA disclosure during World War II to reduce their paperwork burdens and facilitate the war effort. President Roosevelt was concerned that representatives of allies would be inconvenienced during frequent travels to the U.S., However, on October 8, 1946, U.S. Attorney General Thomas Campbell Clark, 1899-1977, announced that henceforth a complete and timely FARA registration from any foreign agent would be expected by the Department of Justice. This cancellation of the wartime ally exemption was personally directed by President Harry S. Truman. Until the Truman cancellation, no registration disclosure was required beyond foreign country principles providing the names of their agents. This courtesy was extended only to countries, quote, the defense of which the president deems vital to the defense of the United States, unquote. Given the unpredictable nature of World War, the U.S. did reserve the right to terminate the special reduction in red tape at any time. A great deal of press attention was devoted to the saga of the wartime FARA conviction of George Sylvester Vierich. During pre-FARA House Committee hearings in 1934, Vierich had been unrepentant about his reporting on Germany personal beliefs, and public relations contracts with the regime. Time magazine detailed his testimony. Mr. Vierich ran a paper called The Fatherland during the war to counteract Allied propaganda in the U.S. Of late, he's been writing and speechmaking. 
interpreting the new Germany to his adopted land. When he heard his name mentioned at the committee hearing, he loudly declared, there's not the slightest touch of impropriety in the contract between Boyer Associates and the German railroads, nor in my connections with that distinguished firm. If it is right for the Russians to hire Mr. Ivy Lee, why is it wrong for the German railroads to employ Mr. Carl Boyer and Mr. Carl Dickey? It was specifically understood that the work involved no propaganda and no anti-Jewish activities. I always regarded it almost as a consecration to interpret the land of my fathers to the land of my children. Vierich was convicted in March of 1942, but his case was remanded by the Supreme Court after he had served a year in prison. This reversal came at the Supreme Court's finding that he was not compelled to report activities falling outside those strictly pursued as a foreign agent. The same issue of Overbroad indictments and unsubstantiated claims would also cause problems later. A similar 1960s FARA enforcement attempt to rein in a rogue FBI agent turned foreign agent for the Dominican Republic was also overturned. Fiedrich was also again found guilty on July 16, 1942 on six FARA charges of failing to list foreign principles and failing to detail to the U.S. State Department a comprehensive statement of activities as was required before the 1942 amendments. The presiding justice, Belitha J. Laws, 1891 to 1958, emphasized during instructions to jury members that Wierich had a right to act as a foreign agent, even for the German Reich, as long as he properly registered with the State Department. Wierich was sentenced and returned to prison. He received early parole in 1947, with 18 months of his sentence remaining. In 1946, Wisconsin Senator Robert La Follette Jr., 1895 to 1953, spearheaded the Legislative Reorganization Act, to modernize Congress and make it more efficient. In addition to reducing and streamlining standing committees, this act required lobbyists to register with Congress for the very first time. Like foreign agents, lobbyists were also required to file periodic disclosures of their activities. La Follette hoped that the opaque yet effective tactics of lobbying and buttonholing would soon become more transparent to the public. He wrote, the term itself, which is peculiar to the United States and not used generally elsewhere, apparently has its origins from the practice of seeking contact with legislators in the waiting rooms or lobbies near the legislative chamber where the public is permitted. It is picturesque, just as the associated term to buttonhole a legislator, which is duly listed in Webster's Dictionary with the definition to hold by the button or buttonhole as for conversation. It is doubtful how effective the literal application of the term may be, but buttonholing, in the more general sense, is in fact lobbying in its simplest and sometimes most effective form. Although the U.S. State Department was no longer the agency charged with enforcing FARA, it did receive negative overseas feedback for a few Department of Justice investigations. In March of 1947, King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia summoned Ambassador J. Reeve Childs to Riyadh to complain about an FBI FARA investigation of the Arab office in New York. During that year, a group called the Non-Sectarian Anti-Nazi League circulated a brochure in a PR campaign against Arab governments. The group's director, Herman Hoffman, 1884-1962, submitted a complaint to the United Nations. 
Hoffman charged that the Arab League and its associated agencies had deliberately provoked internal trouble and racist tension in friendly countries and stimulated propaganda against the admission of Jews in Palestine. It would be among the few Farah complaints filed by Zionist or dominant Israel lobby groups in America. Top-tier organizations also complained and called on the Department of Justice to investigate Ergun Front Group leader Peter Bergson, Hillel Kook. As discussed earlier, Bergson's brash publicity campaigns and successful lobbying diluted and damaged their unified message and leadership on the issue in the 1940s. But the lobby's own vulnerability to Farah made pursuing it against enemies, at least directly, largely untenable. A broad pushback against Farah became visible in the number of registrations. By the close of 1952, there were only 234 active registrations, 137 less than in 1941. While there were 58 new registrations, in 1953, 40 registrations were terminated, bringing net active registrations to only 252. As detailed in an Attorney General report to Congress, most of the registered agents listed their primary activities as concentrated in conducting propaganda. Sixteen persons also registered under a section of the law requiring disclosure of training received for espionage or sabotage tactics, though none claimed to be simultaneously engaged in representing a foreign principle. Many of those interesting details would be lost to the public domain when agents terminated their filings. Practically speaking, when foreign agents filed declarations that they were no longer active, they would request that their names be struck from public registries and information formerly available to the press or public watchdog groups. Many files vanished into largely inaccessible archives and remote storage facilities. Detailed registrations and copies of brochures press releases, and other materials used in foreign agent public relations campaigns were then subject to agency retention and destruction policies. Classified non-public administrative files compiled by Foreign Agents Registration Act enforcement officials have seldom been released. While some of the history of foreign agent lobbying propaganda in America can be found in files at the Library of Congress and the National Archives and Records Administration, much is simply lost to history. Fortunately, the files on Isaiah Kennan and the American Zionist Council were not. Farah's impulse for transparency was matched by other disclosure initiatives. In 1955, the U.S. Treasury Department began working with Congress to pass legislation allowing public inspection of applications for tax exemption made by nonprofit corporations. Undersecretary H. Chapman Rose, 1907 to 1990, testified before the House Information Subcommittee that increasing transparency would stem nonprofit abuses that had been examined in closed hearings. Rose revealed that the Secretary of Treasury had been considering such a move for some time, although the Treasury was not then considering allowing public access to any of the 30,000 tax-exempt returns already filed. Later, all applications and partially censored tax-exempt organization returns would become publicly accessible by written request to charities. Today, most are directly accessible over the internet through designated websites like ProPublica. Public disclosures are considered an important check that charities are in fact performing legitimate activities. But Pharaoh was never perfect and did enable government abuse. Ominously, Pharaoh was once interpreted as a license to censor materials sent through the U.S. mail. 
During the same 1955 hearings, the U.S. Postmaster General was called to testify about Farah-related mail interceptions. He refused to discuss a secret program that had been in place since 1950. Many subscribers to Soviet publications simply never received their bulletins, magazines, and newsletters, which had been seized and burned. By 1956, the post office did let some material it deemed unlikely to be used for propagandistic purposes through to libraries and universities. In 1960, a Senate subcommittee investigated the practice and found that the Postal Service had intercepted 15 million pieces of mail it considered communist or subversive. From 1958 onward, many citizens received United States post office notices that literature with Foreign political propaganda was being held under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. They were asked to sign and return a card within 15 days, attesting to the fact that they had ordered it. Many refused, fearing that their names and interests in overseas publications would be referred to the FBI. Others, such as an irate sociologist from Chicago, sued the post office for their withheld mail. The post office was operating under enforcement policies enacted in 1940 by Attorney General Robert H. Jackson. Jackson interpreted the term agent in FARA as including foreign publishers and that foreign propaganda mailed into the U.S. was both illegal and hence non-mailable unless the foreign sender registered under FARA. The ACLU and legal experts launched three lawsuits to challenge the First Amendment implications of mail censorship and intimidation effect of the return cards. By the following year, the State Department, the Justice Department, and the Post Office unanimously recommended the elimination of the program. The Department of Justice itself suffered another black eye when former FBI agent John Joseph Frank was convicted in 1957 on four counts of acting illegally as a foreign agent. But, as in the Vierek case, the prosecution team initially meandered beyond strict FARA limits, stating that Frank was also linked to the mysterious disappearance of a critic of the Dominican Republic's Trujillo regime. On March 12, 1956, a regime critic and Columbia University professor Jesus de Galindez disappeared during a visit to the Dominican Republic. Gerald L. Murphy, an American pilot who claimed to know what happened to Galindez, also mysteriously disappeared the following December 3. This prompted a federal grand jury investigation to which Frank was called to testify. On October 20, 1958, the conviction was reversed on appeal based on the prosecution's remarks alleging, but not definitively proving, links between Frank and the disappearances. The Dominican Republic case was nevertheless a stain on the FBI and enforcement of FARA that would reemerge. It foreshadowed the slippery slope of influence peddling that could and did reach high into the other two branches of government. The Dominican Republic case would surface again as a warning to all observers of just how politically explosive FARA enforcement could be, even as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee began a serious investigation into FARA enforcement in 1962. FARA enforcement was never intended to be optional or used as a political cudgel against an administration's perceived enemies. The president is required by the Constitution, of course, to make sure the laws be faithfully executed. Presidents who allowed FARA to be only selectively enforced, particularly Truman and Johnson, highlight a grave weakness in constitutional checks and balances that has become even more apparent since. 
If a president's chosen U.S. Attorney General tacitly understands that certain laws are not to be uniformly applied, the rule of law and the viability of the entire nation are undermined. In modern times, the mechanism for undercutting the Constitution is euphemistically called prosecutorial discretion within the Department of Justice. Entities under investigation, such as the American Zionist Council, call it prosecutorial power that should always consider special circumstances. Such discretion virtually guarantees that the least politically enfranchised will face the maximum law enforcement attention, even while their position in society is further eroded by inattention to elite crime. Classification, secrecy, and backroom understandings have been vital to preserving this prerogative. Understanding how FARA has been only selectively applied provides an important context for how it completely failed against two of its most egregious violators the Jewish Agency's American Section, and APEC's antecedent, the American Zionist Council. This is revealed in Israel's claims on U.S. military aid, which began in illicit channels before receiving official support. 